over the next three weeks. Uh, so I'll give you a moment to find that in your Bibles. Every time we go through a minor prophet, it's a little bit harder to find than everything else. So uh, towards the middle. Pardon me if I move a little slow getting set up here. Uh, Joel Lowe uh, had his Bucks party this week and uh, paintball was involved and I feel like I got my money's worth. So, let's go through Jonah 1. We're reading from verses 1 through 16. That's omitting the last verse which we'll do at the start of next week. So here we go. Uh, Jonah 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. The sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? What, from what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do? to you to make the sea calm down for us. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, get into the scriptures. Father God, we thank you for another opportunity to gather together and study your word. Please open your word to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So I'm particularly glad to be here again doing a a nice little series. You'll see me this week and next week and then the week after that. We'll go through all of the book of Jonah. Um, It's a fantastic book because it's it's so memorable uh, because of the interesting events in it, but also for reasons we don't often examine. It changes the normal story of how prophets work in the Bible. Jonah is kind of the anti-prophet. Jonah's story subverts what we expect when we read about a prophet of God. The common story goes like this. God's prophet story is that God sends a righteous prophet, a good guy like an Ezekiel, an Isaiah, a Jeremiah, one of these guys, to a sinful nation of Israel. 
to tell them to stop sinning, otherwise God will punish them for their sin. Typically, they ignore that warning and they get punished, and only then are they interested in what God has to say. Jonah never mentions Israel, never comes up in this book. It's the story of a prophet of God sent to speak God's warning, not to God's chosen people, the Jews, but to these pagans who, as far as we can tell, don't really know God that well. They don't have the covenant that the Jews had with him. And in this story, it's the prophet who tries to avoid God's word, who tries to flee from what God has commanded until his feet are really held to the fire, and then he finally gives in. And when he does give in and warns the Ninevites about what's gone wrong and how they need to repent and turn to God, they immediately repent. They repent so quickly they make the Israelites look really bad. They are so repenty, it's unbelievable. All the poor people in that city hear Jonah, boom, repentance right away. Dressed in sackcloth, start fasting. The rich people hear, boom, repentance, sackcloth, fasting. The king hears, takes off his royal robe, sackcloth, fasting, sits in a pile of ashes, issues a royal decree that all the animals have to also wear sackcloth and fast, um, which leads to an unbelievably cute image of you know, chickens and goats wearing little sackcloth pajamas. But, um, now, we'll talk about those parts later as we, we get into them, but for now, we'll focus on the chapter we just read, which is chapter 1, which is everything before the part about the big fish. If you know anything about the story of Jonah, you know about the fish. We're dealing with everything prior to the fish. So an interesting side note, Jonah is a story that appeals in different ways to different ages. Um, it's a super popular kids' church uh, story because of the big fish. Anything with animals in it, it's a winner with kids. Uh, they love that stuff. Once you're out of Sunday school or out of kids' church, the whale becomes the least interesting part of the story. Um, and I'll try and show you why I say so. But first, we're engaging with a new text, so we should do some groundwork. We know we're reading a historical narrative. We're reading a story it's going to read with names and places that matter. We have exactly two characters in this story with names. We have the Lord, who you might remember from elsewhere, and Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, we know he's a prophet because the word of the Lord comes to him. That's how prophets work. The word of the Lord comes to him asking him to preach against a city. That's prophet's work. And Jonah shows up once in uh, 2 Kings chapter 14, just long enough for us to learn that he comes from a place called Gath-Hefer. Now, that's a town in the area around Galilee, it's about five kilometers from Nazareth. If you're lucky enough to visit Israel, you can go to Gath-Hefer, and you can visit the tomb of Jonah there. So we've, we begin with this tale about Jonah, son of Amittai, receiving the word from God. In verse 2, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. First, where's Nineveh? Nineveh is about 500 kilometers inland and north west, wait, northeast from Israel. It's up inland. It's up there. It's somewhere in modern-day Iraq. So if you can sort of picture the map of the Middle East in your head, if you have that ability, uh, that's where it is. But what's important about Nineveh is that it's, it was the big dog of the, of the ancient Near East in its day. It was the, the big, powerful, Gentile military city that had the power to eclipse all the other nations around it, to crush anyone who opposed it, and certainly was a threat to Israel. 
It was the Rome of its time, the London or Washington, D.C. It was the seat of power for the Assyrian Empire. And these are the same Assyrians who would later on would in fact come down and smash the northern kingdom of Israel to pieces. So in short, these Ninevites were strong, they were pagan, they didn't know God. And history would eventually prove that yes, they were a military threat to Israel. They were a very serious threat. So God commands Jonah to go to these guys and tell them that their number is up, that God's had it with their pagan ways, they need to repent, otherwise they're going to get the Sodom and Gomorrah treatment. Their city will be destroyed. Now Jonah takes this task he's given very badly. Uh, Chapter 4 later on will tell us why. He's not nervous or afraid. He just hates the Ninevites. And he really wants God to nuke them. And for a dumb moment, he allows himself to believe that if he can run out the clock long enough, then God will have to blow them up on a technicality. And he tries to force God's hand into action by running away. And we see him run in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, if you have that kind of map in your mind, Nineveh is 500 kilometers up and inland. Joppa is a little bit down the coast from where Jonah starts. And Tarshish is about 2,500 kilometers in the other direction. It's on the southern coast of Spain. So God tells him to go in and up, and he goes, okay, and gets on a ship and tries to go literally as far as he can possibly go in the other direction. That's the more important part than picturing the map in your head. Jonah goes, and he does sort of that Hollywood trope where the loner is running from his troubles, and he goes to take the next train out of town to as far away as he can possibly get, a one-way ticket to never come back. The author tries to underscore this disobedience to God's word in the Hebrew text. And the, the NIV smooths it a little flat. The ESV captures it a bit more thoroughly. And it comes out like this, saying that God says to Jonah, Arise, as in get up and go to Nineveh. And Jonah's response is to arise and then to go down to Joppa and then to go down into the ship there. And later on, he's going to go down into the whale and then down into the ocean. God says, get up and go up, and Jonah gets up and then goes down and down and down and down and down. Because in his mind, for just a moment, he might be able to outrun God. But that doesn't... The fact that that is absurd does not stop him from trying to be disobedient. And before we judge him too harshly for what looks to us now that we're reading it in reflection as a really dumb action, we need to remember that um, we're not immune to that kind of ridiculous logic from time to time as well for those of us who know God who have the Holy Spirit in our lives convicting us to change our actions to motivate us to become more Christ-like we know that sometimes we are vulnerable to this we should know we know that sometimes we should be for example controlling our temper we should decline to gossip we should be answering this question with honesty but each of us are quite expert at pretending just long enough to get into trouble that maybe God is not completely all-seeing or not all-righteous in his judgment or all-knowing about the things we do wrong and what we try to hide from him. And how blessed we are to know that he is also all-forgiving to those who call on his son's name. And so that we can, in the scope of that great mercy, God has afforded for us to sometimes make Jonah's mistake and be forgiven.
Now, this is my favorite part of the story coming up. We know that Israelite culture was not particularly fond of Gentiles, to say the least. They were unclean. They didn't know the true God. They're ignorant of these important spiritual truths, spiritual factors that the Jews were privy to, that they got to know through their scriptures. And the God who inspired those scriptures made sure to get this book into their prophetic writings, into their, what they, they saw correctly as the word of God. And look how good these Gentile sailors come out looking in this whole scenario. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break apart. And the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. So the storm hits. They all start crying out to their own gods, their various pagan sea gods. Note this reaction. First thing they do in peril is they pray. To the wrong gods, admittedly, but we can appreciate the good habit in the abstract. They toss out all the cargo to lighten the ship after that. They take practical steps to try and confront this problem they encounter. And when that doesn't seem to work, they see that this is a deeper issue. They look for some spiritual clue. They look for some guidance as to what they're supposed to do in this situation. They wake up the prophet on board and they try and get some insight out of him. And this is a pretty great plan. We can learn something from these pagan idolaters. None of us live trouble-free lives. And this is not a bad system to approach those troubles when they show up. Pray, act, reflect. So for example, say you have a Christian friend who is out of work. What you'd hope they were doing is praying daily about their job search and sending out applications and looking for a job. It seems like a no-brainer. If they told you they were praying but not actually looking, that would seem like kind of an excuse not to work terribly hard. And if they told you they were looking but not praying, that would tell you that there was something wrong with their work with God that had to take priority and be dealt with first. And if they were looking and praying, if they were doing both all the practical options within their reach and also submitting it to God, and they weren't getting any success, well, surely you'd sit down with that person and start talking about what we're supposed to learn from this. What exactly is happening here? Should we be looking to move somewhere else? Is there something that you've been called to do, you've been putting off? What is God trying to teach us through this time of difficulty? These Gentiles pray, and then they act, and they reflect. They have a perfect, measured, wise reaction to this difficult event with the tools they have before them. Meanwhile, Jonah is sleeping off his sulky headache below deck. And this is where the story gets really great. The sailors say to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. He told them he was running away from God, apparently when he got on the boat. 
They kind of knew this already. They must have understood this meant running away from a god, perhaps. They had a weaker view of what this meant. And sailors have got to be just about the most superstitious people in the world. You know, so it would have been absolutely believable if their reaction had been to throw Jonah overboard just on principle when the clouds started appearing in the sky. But they pray first. And then they throw the cargo out of the ship. That is all the money they were going to make on this journey. They throw away. Then they cast these lots to try and confirm their suspicions. And when it turns out, yes, to be Jonah, the guy who said he was running away from God, who is the problem, they go and talk to him very nicely. Hey, do you know anything about this giant monsoon that's happening? What was that about running away from God? Maybe that has uh, something to do with this. This is going to be the nicest and most politely conducted witch hunt on record. And this is where we have confirmed that Jonah knows how dumb his own plan is. He tells them that he worships the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That God, the big one, the proper one, the God who made everything, the God who flattened the gods of Egypt and of Canaan just to make a point. That's the God who Jonah is trying to outrun. It's absurd. Jonah knows it's absurd. They know it's absurd. The book presents it as absurd. You can't run from a God that big. Have you seen these clever dog leash harnesses? They're fairly new where they have a harness arrangement that flips the dog around when they try and run away. It's the most amazing thing. There's some kind of cheeky arrangement in the, in the straps on there where the dog is pulling forward and it directs the force to one side so before the dog knows it he sees another dog across the park he wants to run over and sniff that dog and then he's flipped around and he's facing the person holding the leash so that your little tiny you know your short you see the little you know the little girl holding the leash for the giant dog and you go gosh i hope that dog doesn't run anywhere um the dog gets flipped around faces the person holding the leash has no idea what's happened this is the perfect image for what jonah's trying to do here it's futility to run away from god he is everywhere and anywhere you run you will end up facing him and to the sailors it might have made sense to run from say a pagan desert god by fleeing across the sea it seems like their natural habitat they're not going to like there's a sort of a pokemon kind of element to ancient gods where they do better in some places and not in others but this doesn't work for the proper god the real god of heaven this god terrifies them So they continue their incredibly nice interrogation. The sea was getting rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault this storm has come upon you. Notice how ridiculous this makes Jonah look. These sailors are doing everything they can to save their lives and to save his life. He knows how to do it. He knows that if he goes overboard, the storm ends. But he's not saying, stand aside, I will throw myself overboard so that you will not have to suffer. He wants them to pick him up and throw him overboard. He's not even willing to get out of bed to solve this problem. But the Gentiles know now that all they need to do is toss this strange, sulking prophet out into the sea and they will no longer have this grief they are suffering. So in response, in verse 13, they, instead, the men tried their best to row back to land. 
but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm, and the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. These pagans, I tell you, even when they know that they have a potentially lethal solution to the problem, they turn around, they try to row back to shore rather than kill Jonah. But finally, after exhausting every possible option, they go back to Jonah, hoist him up, apologize really profusely to God, and then throw his prophet overboard. And the sea calms. The sea calms, and a ship full of pagan sailors learn that there is a true God in Israel that he created the sea and the land, that there is no appeasement of his wrath without sacrifice. Amen. They become God-fearers in this moment. After they offer this symbolic sacrifice of Jonah, they offer a real sacrifice and make vows to God. This event changes and saves them. In short, Jonah's efforts to deny certain Gentiles the mercy of God ends up extending the mercy of God to even more Gentiles. And through all this, God is patient with his reluctant prophet. He gets away with a lot. The sailors throw him overboard to the thrashing sea, and the sea stops thrashing. And then, as we know, God's going to send this whale, this big fish, in an extraordinary gesture to save Jonah. As if he hadn't been trying his hardest to ruin God's plan. But God has mercy enough for the Ninevites and for the chosen prophet in this case and for the poor sailors aboard the ship who are caught up in the storm. And that's what I mean by the whale being the least interesting thing in the story. We have such an interesting tale about God working through people, through Jews and Gentiles, in spite of what they know of him, how ignorant they are of him, or are working directly against him. He really is the God of heaven who made the land and the sea, heaven, land, sea, sky, earth, water, everything man knows over this God is king. Now, one of the reasons that Hebrew scripture is so fascinating and unique among all the ancient documents that are floating around out there is that it chastises the culture it comes from. We take this a little bit for granted because now it's reasonably popular to chastise the culture that you come from. Any goon can get on TV with a new haircut and a weekly TV show where he talks about how terrible Australia is. But ancient writings and core ancient history is usually written about kings and you don't write badly about your kings they respond badly to that and it's usually really flattering for them stories of conquest stories of superiority over other nations superiority over the foreign peoples hebrew scripture like this is unique in the way that it beats up on the hebrews in this story of a hebrew prophet of god being childish while God is being kind to the Gentile sailors and later to the people that the Jews fear the most is just about unthinkable. And whenever the Jews look back at this scroll in their history, they have a mirror staring back at them in the face because the only one they can identify with in this story is Jonah. He's the Jew, he's the prophet. Their lesson is don't let your relationship with God be like this. But who do we identify with? Who are we supposed to look into the story and see as standing in for us? How is this relevant to us? Because we're not the Jews. 
We've never had this manner of prophet raised up among us, and we're not expecting any. Prophets came from outside to us. So who should we see as our guys? I think it's the Ninevites who Jonah's been sent to speak to later. We're a reasonably wealthy Gentile people. We're notorious for going after our own gods. We're under God's wrath. We need a word from God to repent and be saved. But while those Ninevites get a second-rate prophet with no stomach for the job, whom God tells to arise and chooses to go down and down and down, for us, God sends his son. In essence and in truth, he came himself to warn us of the oncoming destruction. Jesus is our super prophet. He is our perfected Jonah. And when Peter and James and John were growing up in the Galilee, they would surely have received teaching on the whole body of Scripture. And do you think they might have paid a little extra attention to the story of Jonah, the prophet from Galilee, where they are from? Do you suppose it came to mind when they were out in the little boat fishing and storms rolled overhead? Seems like the kind of thing they may have even had in-jokes about. Here comes the storm, who's going overboard this time? But how surreal it must have been for them when they were on that boat, being thrashed around by a storm on the sea, and they're terrified of drowning, and this new Galilean prophet, this man of God, is sleeping under the cover of their ship. Let's revisit that story quickly. That's in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along. They said they took Jesus along, just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with them. A furious squall came up, a furious storm, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now Jesus was in the stern of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, said, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. When these sailors encountered this storm, they knew that only God could calm a storm because only God can make storms. And only God could save their lives. They wake up Jesus because he's their man of God, their prophet, and they hope he can talk God into calming down. They say, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? God might send a fish for someone like you, but we're going straight to the bottom. But when he gets up and calms the storm himself, they are terrified. What do they expect? They woke him up. What were they hoping to see? Not this, apparently. Something more like a prophet, maybe. Maybe they expected they'd, well, probably didn't expect they'd have to throw Jesus overboard, but they certainly thought he'd pray or call out to God or ask the heavens to stop the storm or something. But when he stills the storm with his own words on his own authority, he reveals to the disciples of what they had begun to suspect, that this Galilean is not just a superior version of Jonah. He is God incarnate. He can command the waves like only the Creator can. He has all power over nature, all wisdom over men, and a message to tell the whole sinning world 
to repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And 60 seconds before that, he was sleeping in their boat. How does someone handle that kind of revelation? Well, it's that revelation for us too. Like Jonah was sent to the Ninevites, Jesus was sent to us. And his words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, have been carried through the years for us to hear now. Like Jonah, he was a prophet from the obscure Galilee. Like the God that Jonah fled, he had power over storms and mercy for the Gentiles that had earned his wrath. Gentiles that he was willing to go among. Both of these are true stories, and Jonah's tale foreshadows, shows a sort of a picture of the superior truth of Jesus when he comes. Only by sacrifice can God's wrath be satisfied because all men have sinned and fallen short of the, of the glory of God. Only by grace can we have such a sacrifice, and only through Jesus can we have that kind of grace. Let's thank God for that grace and pray that each day we can be a little less like Jonah and a little more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we were your enemies, blinded and lost in our pursuit of ourselves, and then you sent your Son to take away our blindness and to lead us home to you. Now you call us your children and we call you Father. Thank you for all you have done through Jesus. We are blessed for the way you choose to use us in your work. Please strengthen us against that fallen part that pushes back against your word. Help us to obey the Holy Spirit's convictions and not to ignore them just long enough to flee. And when the storms come for us, help us to pray and act and reflect on how we can better serve you. And finally, God, please keep our hearts tender so that we never forget the sacrifice that you gave on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.